Hello and welcome to Arid Podcast. Arid is a raw, unscripted podcast offering conversations between an artist and a philosopher. In this podcast, you can expect us to uproot, unpick, and redefine contemporary modes of thinking within the South African context. In each episode, we will do so by making eclectic use of various cultural text and theoretical disciplines. I'm Nicolene Berger. And I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. So today we have a very exciting podcast line up for you where we speak to Azul Kutsia. In this episode, we grappled a lot with how to destabilize the concept of or the notion of white Afrikaner femininity. Azul brought so much to the table in terms of her vast amount of knowledge and the historical background that she could offer. So we had so much fun and you can hear or you will hear that we were clearly fangirling to speak with Azul. So yeah, we are really excited for you to hear what she has to say. And we just want to express again our gratitude for her time. Azil was so gracious to spend so much time with us on this topic. And just to plug her here, you can find her on social media, on Instagram, at Azil underscore Kutsia. This is also where she markets most of her public engagements, where she writes on various other platforms. But she also has a book available called In My Fell. And this is available on all platforms where you can buy books, um, also as eBooks on Take-A-Lot and Amazon. So go check that out. Um, and then in this podcast, we share some of our personal politics and we really dive deep into the pressure that we experience as white Afrikaans women to get married and to have babies and to perform a certain way domestically. So we share a little bit about our personal lives and, um, and how those roles affect the way that we are in in relation to our families and to our friends and communities we also consider more complex things related to white afrikaner identity in terms of class and race and senses of complicitness that still stem from apartheid so um as we say always at the end of our episodes, we invite you to stay stimulated. And after this conversation, I was myself still lying in bed at night trying to think about this topic. So it really did stimulate a, a broader conversation. After you listen to the podcast, and maybe you will also be stimulated and have lots of ideas, send us a DM on Instagram. You can send us a voice note on Instagram or however you want. You can send us a letter out if you can manage to find a way, however you want to communicate and let us know how you think we can engage more in this project of destabilizing white Africana femininity. Or, or maybe you can share some of your own personal experiences that add to this conversation. 
And then we want to share some really exciting news with you. So if you are a keen ERIT listener and you've wondered how to support our project, we are working on a Patreon page so you can help us that we can continue with this project um, of airing these conversations that we think is very necessary. And it's going to be set up around a, mem a membership program. So keep an eye out on our social media pages for that. Enjoy the episode. So today we are we will be diving deeper into the question how can we critically consider white Afrikaner femininity within the politics of everyday life? And um, I'm very excited to be here today with Yana again and Azul. And uh, we're going to be talking about this um, topic and going deeper into it. But before we get to the general airing of our ideas, um, Yana and I are really fangirling today <laughs> because we have Azul Kutsia with us. Both of us um, read her book and I actually heard about um, Azul through Yana. So Yana read Azul's book called In My Fell and then she gave it to me and then that book really stirred some critical conversation between Yana and myself because it deals with our white identity. Um, so yeah, Yana, if you want to tell us a little bit more about how you know Azul. <laughs> Yes, I think I actually met Azul, uh, she was, uh, when I was in honors philosophy, I think she came to talk about a PhD research, so for me, um, beyond Azul as a, as a writer, I also know her from the philosophy department, and actually we should be saying doctor, <laughs> doctor Kutsia, um, but yeah, so Azul um, for me is also like a, a, a kind of philosophy uh, icon of our times, and um, yeah, so she, she has done her PhD recently and she talks a lot about like African feminist uh, thought as a decolonizing force. Um, and so Azul, I want to ask you to introduce yourself, but since we are talking about the politics of the everyday and white Afrikaner femininity, maybe you can also just demystify what it is that you do behind the scenes. What is your everyday uh, politics and who you are? Thanks, Jana and Nicolene, for that very generous introduction. <laughs> and thanks for having me. It's nice to, well, at the moment, it's just nice to have conversations with people that are not my boyfriend. <laughs> We're at home and just seeing each other. Yeah, and it's also, I'm a very big fan of your podcast, so I'm glad oh. to be part of it a bit. So thanks for that. I would call myself a feminist philosopher. <laughs> well, it does sound pretentious in South Africa where people don't really see it as a job, but it is, it, it is my job. Um, I look at the relationship between gender and the project of colonization and also the project of decolonization. So, how was colonization also a patriarchal project? How is our way of racializing people and setting up racial hierarchies and segregation, how does that also have to do with, with gender identities and gender hierarchies? And then also in the project, if we start thinking of decolonization, how can feminist thought help us to, to understand some of the aspects of the requirements of decolonization that we cannot understand if we don't look through a gender lens. 
So I'm at Stellenbosch University at the uh, South African Research Chair for Gender Politics, where I'm a postdoctoral fellow, is the word, scholar <laughs> or researcher. And then I also write more creatively and sometimes, yeah, for local publications. I would say philosopher slash writer. And so my PhD research was about how African feminists thought how the gender oppression and sexual violence against African women uh, was crucial to the establishment of South Africa as a colonial settler society and how it was part of establishing the apartheid regime. And now at the moment, I'm switching over more to how is the policing of white women's, of Afrikaner women's bodies and sexualities part of establishing a racial order and of maintaining racial segregation and uh, yeah, racial hierarchy also. So it's still the same topic, but now I'm looking at white Afrikaner femininity rather than the oppression of uh, black women and violence against black women. So just the other side of the coin, basically. That's very interesting. So then let's jump into this white Afrikaner femininity that you've spoken about now. And in one of the cultural texts, a, a um, poem by Anki Kroch that we're going to speak about a bit more, she uses the phrase or the question, what kind of breed are we? And I thought that was extremely interesting to think about. Like, um, and, and, I, and I want you to speak a bit to the construction of the Volksmutter identity and any other identities before, before apartheid that was created for the white Afrikaner women. So what is the Volksmutter? How was it created? And what kind of preceded the, before that term was formed, the kind of identities for the white Afrikaner women? So there. A very interesting thing is how little we know of our, and I think it's a problem in South Africa in general, that we, we have a kind of cultural amnesia, we're not looking back at all. But then also as white Afrikaner people, we are not looking back. And I think there are two reasons for that. On the one hand, it is uh, the shame of it and that we are scared to, um, what do you call it when you, um, um, expose yourself as something bad. So we are not looking at our history, but then also I think even if you have good intentions, we are not looking back because we, there's that fear of recentering whiteness in our thinking and in our work. So I, in scholarship and in popular culture, I feel we are not looking at our histories critically and so when you start looking at Afrikaner history, history, I'm speaking also like an Afrikaner. Um, <laughs> That's part of our podcast. We even said in the first episode, people are going to have to accept the fact that we have accents. So it's fine. Mine <laughs> is so bad. <laughs> um, so it's, when you start looking back, it gets extremely interesting, especially as a woman. Because some, what they say is that all nationalisms are gendered. If you, in, if you look back in history globally, as soon as there's a group of people fighting to be kind of a nation or to be in control of a nation, it relies on, on gender stereotypes. Um, mm. Also, cultural boundaries are established with reference to how women are. So, uh, for example, this is, I think an example that everyone finds obvious a way that Muslim identity is very easily identified and kind of 
uh, it's used as a way to de demarcate it is through the often where the women cover their heads or their faces. Um, so it's that kind of relationship where women become a marker or some symbolic carrier of the culture. Mm. Also physically, they they are the they reproduce the culture by creating children and by rearing them in a certain way. And so um, women play this very important role in all nationalisms. In Afrikaner nationalism, it's no different and it's very interesting. So there, the role that the woman takes up as kind of symbolic carrier or marker of culture and nation is in the form of the Volksmutter, which is the, I think, a kind of beautiful word, Afrikaans word for mother of the nation. Um, the Volksmutter is um, very strong because she has to survive and she has to fight the hard fight. But even this strength is always subjugated to the, the power of the patriarch and the strength, the mother, where she, the realm where she exerts her strength is in the domain of the household. Mm. Um, even when Afrikaner women fought for the vote in the 1920s, they did it through the idiom or the ideology of motherhood. They said mm. the, the nation is also like, um, it must also be cleaned and it, it must also be like we spoke about um the something like the heisot kinder van die folk or like you high domestic yeah it's also something that has to be cleaned that has to be looked after after that has to be taken care of and women are really good at that so they should have that role also in in politics so even when they assert the political identity it is through motherhood um, so on the one hand, it's great to, to say that there is power in an identity like motherhood and being a mother. But then on the other hand, what happens, what, what you see in Afrikaner history is that the woman just gets pushed into that space. And even when she wins the vote on the basis of being the Volksmutter, um, she, like 40 years later, there were still almost no women in parliament. And they, the way that historians are analyzing it is because women got the vote as mothers, they were still relegated to that in, inferior subjugated position, even in politics, and pushed right back out of it again. So mm. it's that double-edged sword of recognizing the power in your role as mother, but then um, not being able to transcend that little box and the, the domestic realm. Mm. Um, that's so interesting if I think about also how I think I also read something of how the the public like you say the the platform from which they run almost was uh, under women's issues or thrower soccer so yes. that also then your political concern will be limited to and um to only matters of maybe women and then of course children by default yes. So then you are the kind of political advocate and that's where, but it doesn't, like you say, it doesn't transcend that part. But the interesting thing is in the domestic realm, there is a lot to be done if you are fighting for the Afrikaner folk. Like the women played a major role in uh, uplifting, and I use quotes to say that, the, the poor, the so-called poor whites of the time, which meant kind of disciplining them. So, at the time, a lot of white people became very poor. It was after the um, South African War. 
it was um, something else also happened. What, what was it? Oh, that was also the World War. And it was just uh, many African people became very poor. And then there was a massive push from the middle class and rich African women to uplift these poor people, which also meant disciplining them into the politics of um, a middle class white Afrikaner identity. Which is, and that's something that we can talk about when we look at the um, magazines and popular culture today, how Afrikaner identity is also really intertwined with a, with a middle class like, and a mm. consumer identity, which mm. is very interesting. And it's almost uh, um, there again. Sorry if I'm speaking too much, but there's just so to say, of course. So, whiteness is also, if you look at this time in Afrikaner history, um, it was the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, so, the Afrikaners were, it, it was a time where the, when the, the British had just won the South African War, and the Afrikaners were kind of being pushed out of all positions of authority on the basis that they are almost sliding into blackness or becoming native and they weren't the english didn't recognize them as white enough really because they've been um it, and it was always a, a danger and i put it in quotes again of of the colonizer to become more like the colonizers part of the colonial um scholarship it, there was always that fear of losing one's whiteness if you if you as a european go live in the colony and so that's a bit what happened with the Afrikaner in the eyes of the British is that they, they became kind of, uh, they lost their civilized status as Europeans. So the big project of Afrikaner nationalism was to reestablish the whiteness of the Afrikaner. Mm -hmm. And that culminated in the establishment of apartheid. But so part of the project of establishing the Afrikaner as, as unambiguously white really had to do also with class because the poorer it's Franz Fanon who says uh, you are rich because you're white you're white because you're rich always says it the other way around but um, how money and in quote civilization are very closely connected or a civilized white identity and so there the Afrikaner women as Volksmutter played a very important role to make sure that Afrikaner people were like that proper and literally you can go read uh in some of the reports that, like they made sure they had to make sure that the the poor Afrikaner people got like proper furniture in their homes and that the women would dress properly so it's it's really um bound up with kind of class uh, norms and ideals um and then also is so also to speak about the sexuality the, I'm reading more and more how the policing of white Afrikaner women's sexuality was absolutely integral to the whole project of apartheid because maintaining the kind of symbolic boundaries of the white Afrikaner folk necessitated that Afrikaner women, white women should not be sleeping with anyone outside of the folk of the race of the ethnic so immediately as soon when apartheid was established the the first legislation that came out was legislation prohibiting what they called mixed marriages um it's also the 
the entire movement of Africana nationalism and then apartheid is really heavy on um, policing the heterosexuality of white women because it's another thing you need if you need this folk and you need to procreate as a folk you need the uh, uh, woman the woman's reproductive capacities to be um, harnessed in service of this reproduction of the folk so it also so the more i'm reading back into our history the more i realize that all of these gender constrictions I'm feeling in my life and in my culture as white Afrikaner person is no coincidence. It's, it's really deeply intertwined with the establishment of this cultural identity and with the racist paradigm of apartheid. So the interesting thing is then is that the liberation, my gender liberation as feminist is then kind of part of the project of fighting racist hierarchies and identities in South Africa and um, and kind of decolonizing our society. So then it becomes very interesting if you start thinking of your own liberation as, as Afrikaner woman as part of um, destabilizing these racial hierarchies and segregations. And then one more thing, <laughs> you can, so, um, when you make the episode, you can insert questions in between because <laughs> it's airing it. It's the airing it part. <laughs> you can say I haven't been speaking to anyone. <laughs> no, but it's lovely. It's so inspiring. And I get like this as well. When I'm into a topic, it's like you're musing. It just can't oh, stop. And it's very inspiring. So keep going. <laughs> So uh, in contemporary, like today, contemporary South African society, we still see this thing of how racial boundaries are maintained through policing the um, Afrikaner women. If you just think of the threat around rape in white Afrikaans or in white middle class neighborhoods where you have the... Um, what do you call it? Neighborhood watch and security mm. patrolling, and that hysteria around black male bodies mm. um, as the and the implicit threat is always the rape of our women and daughters, and mm. so this becomes a way of again today of of pushing black people out of white spaces to protect in quotes the the white woman's body and in a very sexual way, which is directly aligned with the colonial narratives of the black peril where um which you also see in american history where black men are typecast as um in quotes natural rapists that white women should be protected from and that then becomes a excuse to uh, segregate and to dominate and oppress black people so my the, the protection of my sexuality also that's why i can't go or that's why i'm warned against going out late at night without a boyfriend or a husband by my side because i could get raped and the the silent thing there is always it might be i might be raped by a black man so these things are always implicit you see it so often also in newspaper articles in there is always that underlying threat, which is a colonial construct. Mm -hmm. And um, it's done in the name explicitly of my safety as a white woman. So there's also that very interesting thing still happening. Of like, yeah, uh, protecting that folks, that inherent folks model that has to be yeah. maintained. Yes. 
something I wanted to say about that, Azil, that's so interesting to me is that you briefly mentioned the reluctance to look back onto our history and, and this reluctance to reflect critically about our identity actually really also bars this um, project of destabilizing the white identity. So, so in that sense, the destabilization doesn't take place because of this reluctance to look back for the fear of centralizing whiteness and all of that. Um, but let's quickly talk about this interesting um, this interesting question that Christy van der Westhuizen poses in her thesis, where she says that, um, she asks what space was left for the Afrikaner women to reshape her identity um, outside of the boundaries of the Volksmutter post-apartheid, and why this is important to consider today. So essentially, just before we go into the cultural text, just briefly highlighting again, why do we need to do, why do we need to ask about other identity opportunities and if, they, if there were any other identity opportunities for white women to redefine themselves after apartheid? Yeah, I think that's very difficult and that is what I am struggling with and I think you guys are too. Mm. Oh, yeah, many people I know are because if you, if you look around you, it's difficult to see alternatives. Like, I don't see many Afrikaner women who are not having babies, who are not. So what Christy van der Wees says and also speaks of is kind of these folksmutter values of compulsory heterosexuality, compulsory motherhood. She has a whole list that she says very well. Um, and everything in service of this perpetuating or the survival of this Afrikaner white community if we don't say folk anymore even mm. yeah and, and i'm not to say mother like without the folk and without the mother yes exactly and i don't know it's for me i struggle to find those role models i see wherever i look when the afrikaans women i know get to a certain age they have babies and there's a certain kind of and, and there's nothing wrong with having babies, of course. It's just that it's difficult to see uh, examples of Africana femininity outside of this paradigm of motherhood. And mm. yeah, obviously I know I do know a lot of queer Afrikaner women, but they are not centered in the culture. And they, I, I think almost if you're queer, you obviously it's very difficult in other ways, but it's easier to reimagine your identity because you, you move much more easily outside of this paradigm. But as soon as you are with a man in a relationship, even though I won't um, categorize myself as strictly heterosexual, I am in a long-term relationship with a man. And then it becomes very difficult to, I don't know, to find ways to live alternatively, even if I, I did not get married. So I'm resisting that kind of, and again, I'm not saying marriage is wrong. I know Jana is married, but it's, yeah, it's very difficult for me to, to see how, how to do it differently. I don't and know, what do you think? No, I, I think the same. And what is interesting to me is to note that when we speak about alternatives, it's kind of like there is just the the Afrikaner identity and then there's the alternative and everything yeah. outside of this identity gets categorized under the alt your alt alternative you know so it's still it's connected it's still connected to the original or the normative or you know like yeah. the kind of the, the bigger pool of people and then you're kind of outside functioning as as an alternative and what that alternative means I don't know 
I don't know what makes me alternative or what lets other people say like, oh my goodness, you're a little bit strange or you don't fit into this space or what makes me feel uncomfortable when I don't fit into groups of people that look like me and that are also raised like me. And it's so interesting and complicated and we'll move on to the cultural texts now, but I'm also thinking for a long time in my personal way of like navigating with this dilemma, like you say, the, the heteronormative white Afrikaans identity at a time, I don't know if I tried to convince myself or what my internal process, but I was thinking along the lines of like, and that was probably just from reading Butler too much, but um, <laughs> I was thinking like maybe the answer lies in or the best way that I could practically think of like subverting this this narrative was in a way to get married, but then to to try and do it differently or to try and show that there's an option of just getting married and saying like I'm gonna like a and I'm going to eat because my parents wouldn't give me the money if I didn't give to the party. Like um, the option isn't really given that you can, will give you this money to go and travel. Like you kind of have to tap into, I'm going to do it for the wedding or I don't know many like people in relationships who didn't get married, whose parents just told them like, let's give you this money. And it comes to the class, middle class thing once again of like showcasing that, that heteronormativity. So I don't know. I'm, I'm even, being married is so like, I'm still so troubled by this problem and constantly almost self-criticizing for how you, how you can navigate this and, and, and what it would mean. Cause then you, you conform explicitly, but then you have to explain to everyone why your version of it is different and why you think that is subverting it in some way, uh, which I don't know, I'm still feeling so unsure about how to navigate that. And what is interesting to me is the explicit, the implicit messaging around safety and security for a woman if she gets married. And then now also being in a partnership with someone and, and struggling with, um, is there a next step? Are we going to get married? And if we get married, what would it look like? Because of the pressure that, that I feel from my family, there's also this negotiation that needs to happen within myself constantly about security, financial security, safety, and all of that, that is actually things that need to function outside of marriage within ourselves, you know, like finding security and finding financial security is something that you can negotiate with yourself and in relationship with other, with other people. But the way that I was raised was that those kind of things were always connected to your partnership and to your marriage. So trying to navigate that kind of safety and financial security outside of marriage is, a, is almost a task that I feel like I'm doing and our generation is doing for Afrikaner women like for the first time like really trying to see what would safety and security look like outside of the relationship and then within the relationship how can I find it within myself without leaning too much on on these structures that are set in place to kind of provide that yeah and I, I also like what both of you have mentioned now or worked with now is that when we, when we see it in a binary way of Africana femininity versus something else and trying to look for this, I don't know, this utopian alternative that's just completely outside of it, I think then we set ourselves up for failure. Mm. That it's, it's about how do we live this identity in a way that, that is destabilizing the, the racial and gender narratives and norms that come with it. Um, yeah. 
And why are we so caught up with this idea of having a successful version, almost that's striving towards a successful way of being either then alternative or conforming to the the Volksmutter norm. So like mm. you say, that setting yourself up for a failure of something that, that wasn't really supposed to be like that, that type of oppression Olympics yeah. language. So maybe we should move in. We've aired a lot out now. Um, <laughs> and I think that the reason why we've aired it out for so long is also because it is so so complicated and personal at the same time. For today's cultural texts, um, we've decided, or Azul actually suggested, we do a poem or two, uh, we'll see how it goes, um, from Antti Kroch and Renalda Eiskampfer. And then we were also looking at the Sari magazine, not necessarily to go and pick on specific examples, but we see it as a kind of mirror to talk about the societal assumptions and narratives um, that exist in like what we call this politics of the everyday life. So, so the story is helpful in this way. Um, and then also because the story has a history um, when, with what Azil spoke about before, it was, I think initially it was like the Boerfrau and the folks, the, the development of the story historically was with this idea of the folks mudder. I also read, the figure of Sari Mare, where the name came from, um, where they said they were actually not sure if it's a hypothetical or a real person. And there's two possible Sari Mare's that could be the one from the song. And I thought it was so funny that this construct of the Sari Mare as almost the example maybe of the old Volksmutter, I'm not sure, um, is actually also this like hypothetical person maybe. So I thought that was quite interesting. Just to add there, um, just to give some credit to um, Christy van der Westhuizen, uh, who's a scholar, I think she's at Nelson Mandela University now, I don't know where she is, but she wrote the book Sitting Pretty uh, about Afrikaner uh, femininity and feminine identity. Um, and she, so what she does in one chapter is to read a year, a year, how would you say, a year full of saris. <laughs> <laughs> And she close reads it and looks at it as a kind of text representing um, Afrikaner culture and Afrikaner feminine. So that's where we got that idea, just to reference. <laughs> Read it. <laughs> All right. So I think um, maybe, Azil, if you don't mind reading Anki Kroch's poem. I'm going to read an English translation of um, the poem. The original poem is in Afrikaans in Ayaki Kroch's poetry compilation, Lady Anne. The English version that I'm reading is in Lumari Krier's book of Motherhood and Melancholia. She, I don't know if she did the translation herself or whether she got Anki Kroch to do it, but that's where the English translation comes from. Lady Anne at the microwave oven. Oh, my Afrikaner sisters in combis and station wagons with stylish sunglasses and hair tinted against the gray, bodies that jog and gym and yoga in flowery leotards, fiercely clinging to pliancy and pull. 
As we flit past one another on the highways, stop in dusty clouds next to sport fields, attentively gesticulate the rhythm outside music studios, pray one another to tears during Bible study, I am wondering, what kind of breed are we? In the merciless methodology of planning, I recognize the insanity of packing an ox wagon. The passion with which, which children are pushed to excel and persevere smells of concentration camp and croup. And as we sit on Sanderson linen and ooh and coo and the men at the built-in bar drink desperately and talk about tits, we know that we are the last, the last whose children are being tenderly blonded on milk and honey. This is the end behind us, under us, around us. Structures that keep our kind in place are crushing themselves to bits. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so. And the Afrikaans is also very beautiful. That the insanity of packing an ox wagon is the Vansen van Waar Pak. So oh, the Afrikaans wow. is also really beautiful. And, and now that you brought that specific sentence up, that was something that I also picked up on and how Crook draws the parallels between modern tasks ascribed to the Afrikaner femininity and then relating those tasks to the Groot track. So this kind of like how we understand the Volksmutter identity is something that we've transcended, but not really, you know, it's, it's still there. It's very, very much evident in everyday things. And, and it links to these qualities and services that were ascribed to the Volksmutter. So you mentioned a list of things that Christy van der Vesta didn't go through. So maybe we can just mention also the kind of domestic tasks, but in relation to the, the fact that racial privilege empowers white women to draw on, like, to, to, to draw on black bodies, as a resource to help with this kind of services that need to happen, you know, like domesticity in South Africa is so is such a political space. Um, and, and, and that brings in the exploitation of the black body as well. So looking at these qualities and services and linking it to that kind of exploitation that is still going on today. How can we understand what Krok means between this kind of the track and the modern day tasks? How do you read that? Like methodology of planning. Yes. <laughs> I like that a lot. So, uh, yeah, I think that's such an important point that you just made about to think also about this femininity intersectionally, because mm. sure, we are um, subjugated to our um, patriarchs in the Afrikaner family, but we are not the worst off because we. Um, have the resources and we live in a society structured in a way that allows us to uh, make use of the labor of um, poor black and brown women who then take up the, the kind of domestic roles that, that we feel we are empowered enough to transcend, we push onto other women. Mm -hmm. um, we pay then a, a really low wage to do that for us. So, and this is, the, one sees this a bit in the, in the poem, or we see it very well, the, the class dimension of mm. that this Afrikaner womanhood is a very specific kind of middle class mm. womanhood that, that has specific privileges, mm. but also that exists within structures that are busy, busy crumbling, hopefully. Mm. Mm. About the Vansen of Vapak, the insanity of packing the ox wagon and this, I, a friend once told me the story that really 
embodies this truth for me. So he plays tennis, he's an adult and he's part of a tennis club. And then you would play different clubs on Saturdays. And he says when they go to the northern suburbs of Cape Town, um, which is where I grew up, which is a traditionally Afrikaner haven. Is that where the Vorschuldain is? Yes. So okay, I've never understood. On the N1, and then you start seeing the, the Platte Kloof and the Tijgerberg Hills, that part there. I, I think that's where the Vorschuldain, the Boere Vorschuldain. <laughs> I always imagine it there. <laughs> Um, but he says that when on a Saturday morning when they go to to the north to the southern suburbs now the southern suburbs traditionally in Cape Town that's very uh, English very wealthy part so if you go there then the southern suburbs tannies so usually it's the also in their culture it's the the wives and the mothers who make the sandwiches for the morning's mm -hmm. game but he says when you when you rock up there the, the tannies are just sitting around there or the English aunties are just sitting around there like smoking cigarettes and their hair is like still in a mess because it's early Saturday morning and they're like drinking coffee and chatting and there's no sandwiches. And then he says when you go to the northern suburbs on a Saturday morning for your tennis game, then the women, are the sandwiches are stacked and it's like <laughs> cool drinks and the tunnies, their hair is looking wonderful and they're wearing their tight jeans and like And for all the yoga pants that... As Anke Kroos says, and the hair tinted against the grey and the bodies that jog and gym and so it's this very specific but it's also a disciplining of the of the woman's body, right? Mm -hmm. And I see it very clearly. And if we look at the Afrikaner popular culture as expressed in a magazine like Sari, and I see it in, in my life and the way I grew up, the importance of looking a certain way, of grooming mm -hmm. yourself in a certain way, of your weight being at a certain level. I mean, we are so, our bodies are disciplined into this, into looking this way. And she also really, um, expresses this very well in the poem. So when Jana and I was looking a little bit at the sari, it was interesting to notice that if you had to divide the, the sari into sections of things that it speak about, the biggest part of the sari is about um, appearance, what you look like, you know, and how to groom yourself and what is fashionable and what is not, weight losing tips, speaking about breast reduction, speaking about all sorts of kind of things that are, is connected to the way you look and then domesticity and domestic tasks and how to, how to be in a relationship and then maybe business, which is more like the capital a capitalistic side of it where it's, it's also like looking specifically at like how to be a businesswoman but not um not in a critical sense necessarily it's it's tips for your business but it was very interesting for me to notice how big a part of that magazine is about appearance and what you look like and how to groom yourself and Which something in the, sorry Anna, in the no, tradition of, of women's magazines but i think that's also a point that christy van der Bees and makes is that um, Afrikaner femininity really hopped onto that or Af Afrikaner women's culture really hopped onto that neoliberal global post-feminist kind of mm. politics which is mm. we will care about our appearance and that's it that kind of 
Yes. And it's almost that, it's exactly that. And that's where um, the classing is just perpetuated so much with that kind of boss lady narrative that you find. And even um, in terms of the fashion advice, looking at the type of fashion icons that are suggested, it's very much the, the Meghan Markle identity as well. Um, and it's coincidentally in this month, sorry, it is, um, they suggest the kind of Meghan Markle classic style. Also, I'm thinking about the whole voorbladgezicht thing, the, 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 the cover girl type of thing as a, as a modern version also of how to curate this appearance. So I, I think this Sari Voorbladgesig obviously speaks more broadly and it's something that you see on your Facebook and it is a little bit in the politics of the everyday of, of what you aspire to be or, or where you set yourself in that position. But it was interesting me, to me to notice how it is curated in terms of tips for how you can curate yourself if you want to take your Sari Voorblad photo. And something like considering, and it's just an example that maybe if you have shorter hair, you should consider other ways of ex of putting the attention maybe with like dramatic earrings or a choker, or maybe consider gelling your hair back um, or, or making it appear very soft. So, and it was, and that was just one thing that I noticed. It was like ex explicitly specified only in the case of short hair which I just found really interesting with how we construct and the, the type of fashion and how um, femininity comes to play with those type of stereotypes that is presented to us. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's almost impossible to talk about the Afrikaner identity without touching on the NG Kerk and the nuclear family and sexuality, as we've noticed now. Like in our conversation, it's very hard to just talk about one aspect of, the, of this identity, the Afrikaner identity. So even if we want to speak about Afrikaner femininity, we touch on sexuality and, and um, like you said, the compulsory heterosexual nature of the Afrikaner women and and also how it relates to your role in the nuclear family. So we just mentioned this briefly, this word, um, heteronormativity. Pack the word heteronormativity and, and why it's important to be aware of it and how it plays out. And also how that was set up, touching on the ideals within the nuclear family during apartheid, but also how we notice it in our own um, families today. Um, so if you can maybe unpack that word a little bit and how it relates to the nuclear family post-apartheid, the Afrikaner nuclear family post-apartheid. Uh, how I understand heteronormativity is when heterosexuality is normalized as the normal and the central and the only way to be, and that it becomes this norm that you have to conform to. Uh, and if you struggle to conform to it, you have to try harder, you have to aspire to if you're a woman, you, it's, and it's not only about women being partnered up sexually and romantically with men, it's about the gender norms that go along with it. Mm -hmm. So heterosexual masculinity is one that is, and also, again, you see it very clearly in the sari that we mm -hmm. read together. The, there's a certain kind of masculinity that is, the, the father is a figure of authority and he is brave and he, he has a certain role in the family and the woman 
is soft and caring and loving and she has a certain role. If you start looking at queer theory and feminist theory, this nuclear, heterosexual nuclear family is also very much a crucial building block or foundation of capitalism where it frees up. You, you have a woman doing all the unpaid um, free care labor and domestic labor to free up your male citizen who mm. enters the public realm and becomes a productive citizen of society. So it's, it's also this, this family, the nuclear family structure with its specific gender norms also works specifically in service of a capitalist system. Mm. And it was very interesting in Anki Krog's poem to, I kept thinking when she listed all the things that the women were doing, asking for who, and the answer is for the men. It's this kind of availability of the women to make this kind of sitting around the bar and drinking and talking about tits that she mentions there possible. But also it was interesting for me that that is the only line where men in this poem is specifically addressed. So yeah, maybe we can speak a little bit about, about that as well, like that kind of, that she only mentions it in that one line, but everything else is kind of set up around the domestic space to make it more comfortable for the men. Yeah, and to enable the, so the, the line is, uh, and the men at the built-in bar drink desperately. I also like that drink desperately because I feel that's something that Afrikaner men really do. They drink desperately <laughs> <laughs> and talk about it. So it's, um, and there we see the, the breast motive, which we've already touched on in this conversation. Yeah, I like what you're saying that there's just this one line in which the men are, but structurally, structurally the whole poem is kind of circling around these men sitting at the built-in bar. Yes. I think that's, um, that is also a, an interesting aspect of Afrikaner femininity is, so the, the narrative is often that, that we don't need feminism because we are so strong already, and you see a bit of that everywhere in our popular culture, that Afrikaner girls are strong and they... Uh, know how to do things and they and therefore they don't need feminism and that was very much you see if you google Volksmutter or so you see like a woman in a copy and a white dress standing with a with an old big gun and they it was the Afrikaner women who really at the time of the South African war refused to give up and really pushed the men to keep on fighting even after the war was officially lost or looked like it was lost. Um, so there is this strong identity that we, we can do without the men. We can, and we, we have these sisterhoods, we have these strong bonds with, with, with our mothers and other women. But, and this is a term that, that uh, Chrissy van der Wessels and also uses, it's always within the view of the, the patriarchal overseer, that the, the man is always lurking, it's always within the bounds that he sits, and he's always, yeah. you're always kind of performing for this. The, the man is always there with um, authority. And, yeah. and what I found interesting also is that, as in the Kroh example, is it's not like the, the man is not depicted as a laborer, he, he is depicted it's in terms of relaxation or, or connecting with peers and it's you see the same with your example of the broikis and the tennis it's it's playing 
and it's the same when if you think about the domestic labor in preparation for a braai it's it's that energy that goes into even if it's just planning like the, the methodology of planning making the whatsapp group to organize the braai um deciding who brings what it's all of this preparation but it's not for the big political fight it's it's for the almost relaxation moment that the men can enjoy and they're not really showcased the, the aspect of them where they're actually working or being productive and that that also brings for me the theme of the folks mother and the laborer and we, if you think about if i think about my grandmother um who lived like she was this like farm lady and it's this busy body always busy with physical labor mm -hmm. like you're making the bread and you have to be strong to be able to do that and then we also see it in the, the type of recreational activities that like brian Nicolini, you also mentioned and yeah, i'm and doing i'm doing it ironically for for art at the moment <laughs> and it's it's yeah so i'm also interested to unpack we spoke about the labor or how it's the domestic labor is kind of passed on um, to reestablish that class security, but also then to think about this idea of the, the busy, the constantly doing something. something. And uh, yes, I, I wanted to actually say that as well, because it's very evident in the poem that, that everything is very active. Like the woman is busy with things. Like even if it's yoga, even if it's like planning something, organizing this, she's busy, you know? There's this, there's this energy in the poem of doing, doing, doing. And it's something where I really notice this service a lot in my, my everyday life when I'm around my family is that when we sit around the table and everything has been laid out and the woman has been busy with like most of the food and maybe the men will contribute by brying but that's like where it stops and everything else has been set up and we eat the moment that everyone is now stopped eating the women start moving you know you have to pack up the dishes you have to clear the table you have to clean the kitchen as soon as the kitchen is clean you have to start asking people do they want coffee now you prepare the coffee you put out the coffee tray you take the tray what do the men do they stand up and they take the tray okay that is also very interesting gestures it's a very like a performance in the house you know around who does what and then as soon as the coffee is done okay now you have to clear the coffee cups so i always find this very frustrating as an alternative of recon's women that i don't have a moment to sit there's this pressure to jump up and do things you know you have to be busy you have to do something with your hands it's just one note it's funny with the stereotypical thing of the the active passive distinction that is, that is often used in feminism as women depicted as passive. But what we find with the Afrikaner folks more, there is like an overly active woman, but in service of, of the, the man and, and the monitoring that goes on that you mentioned. Yeah, and then those kinds of things are used as a way to say, look how empowered our women are, look how busy they are. They not, meanwhile, it is in service of a very specific family structure what i wanted to touch on which is also what you said earlier jana about the, the that there's this busyness and there's this activity and but it's not it's so depoliticized and mm. i really see that today like when i go to gender and feminist conferences you would have the black girls of all the different cultures in, in South Africa would present papers and performances about the patriarchy in their cultures and the, thing that the things that they experience. And the Afrikaner women don't open their mouths. Like we don't, it's as if it's, and every now and then when, when I do start speaking about it, 
people find it so interesting because it's it's really you don't hear it. You don't. Where are the Afrikaner feminists? Where mm. are where is the white Afrikaans politics? Except for the we see the the far right politics, but we we struggle to see something in between. We don't see any movements, political activism, and organization around any other issues than super far right issues. So it's also this strange thing how we are so. And if you if you look at Afrikaans cultural products, if you look at TV, if you look at magazines like Sarif, the politics are just missing. It's, there's just yeah. like this resounding silence. Mm. And then I, I wonder what, what is happening there. And why we are so reluctant, like you said, um, in our preparation, why are we so reluctant to address the patriarchy directly in our houses? There's this fear to speak about patriarchy within our like nuclear families and that and acknowledge that it's there. It's very, very, very prominent there. And I also don't know why. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting. And, and um, what I liked about the other poem that we considered talking about today with Red Virgin from um, Ronaldo Kampfer, and um, we don't have to read it, but just uh, uh, the reference of like this arcade fire and the, the, the eating habits and Hannah Arendt, the, she says the Hannah Arendt, Sylvia, the plaf romance. And it was interesting because I was reading Hannah Arendt today and I was like, oh wow. And also arcade fire. And it is this interesting thing and that's coming back to that African, alternative Africana and the, Afri the alternative Afrikaans or the Afrikaans feminist, where it's not just a conversation where you have to, in the first instance, just, just explain why feminism is needed. You almost have, to, it's like the F word. And if you are labeled a feminist, then you have to, you, you know, you can't move beyond just describing the conversation before you can actually have the conversation. And it's interesting for me also personally, sometimes like I've had this feeling that I'm almost associating or my the the sense of like a I'm imagining like a, a middle-aged white Afrikaans alternative man that can listen to Valiant Swart and or Spoogvolf and Kuskom Base and Arcade Fire and the National and that almost like melancholic um suburban mundane thing that that I associate with I feel like I relate a lot to those themes and then also to, then I'm, I often just draw on European feminism or American feminist thinkers. And yeah, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to see that, that kind of representation of the, when we talk about the everyday, the mundane and how it is for us, it's not just, I cannot just listen to the national and forget about politics that a lot of white middle-aged men can do. And so to bring the, the political into our cultural texts that, that we can read in magazines and that And I well. feel also about your the musical references there. So when I was in school, the whole Folk of Polisica movement started and I was in that school where all of it was happening. And when I look back on it, and we were thinking we are so progressive and so political, but it was also such an insular movement. I mean, it's, we were kind of navel gazing and it's what I thought was progressive and political back then. And I'm not saying this as criticism against the music because I mean, they did what they did and they did it very well, but I'm, the way I saw myself in that movement, I realized now it wasn't, there wasn't, it was just 
us thinking more about ourselves and not really relating it to a broader world and really questioning our race and class position and yeah so it's I wanted to say I like the idea of the, the middle-aged guy listening to the national and <laughs> yeah how we we posture kind of as as being liberal and progressive and but we are not there really out there speaking about any of the issues or doing anything I think I think that relates for me what's coming up is it relates a lot to the comfort of the spaces that we live in as middle-class people. And like you said earlier, the policing of the spaces that we live in, that there's almost this kind of, and I think of it as mini Uranias, you know, there's this mini Uranias everywhere where private security is used to mark the borders and people that don't want to feel uncomfortable and don't necessarily want to have these conversations can escape to their homes and live within that patriarchal structure, within their role, and there's nothing challenging it on that level. Even the popular culture and the things that they read and the movies created, all of it feeds into the, that safety net, that safety space you can be in actually. So I don't know how we are going to transcend that, but from an artistic point of view, that's why I use my white body in public spaces to, to highlight the, the complexities around who I am and the necessity to question that. And especially in, like, in connection to, to history and how we remember publicly, like in the form of monuments and those kind of things. Because I also think the markers we have in our country that, that, that shows that it still connects us to our past are standing very uninterrupted as well. So there's this this project of of criticizing and destabilizing needs to happen in in the private space, but in the public space and in the space that's in between. And it hasn't really, I feel like, after apartheid happened in the public space in the way like that we have places that constantly um, make us reflect critically, you know, it, it has become a personal project almost. There's no, nothing outside pushing us, which is interesting. Um, and I don't, I don't always know how to think about that and how to, how, like you say, there's, there's, it's not like there is an alternative movement and, and an alternative or a feminist um, movement amongst us so that we can kind of join into that thing and like write and write a new story or really unpack some of the problems that we have. It's kind of this awkward, uncomfortable space within the silos that we have. Nicolina, I think you you said it so well now. And it's something that um, Chris Ivan says and also writes about that we, in the new, new in quotes, South Africa, this, we're continuing with this segregation. It's just privatized now. Yeah, we, we build yeah. our walls, we make our neighborhoods, and there we can live in a, she calls them white Afrikaner enclaves, where we don't have to see <laughs> yeah. anything else. And it's this, uh, I think you're right, it's the comfort that, that we are so scared of kind of stirring things up to, to lose the privilege that, because we, and it's as Anki Kroch writes, we are the last whose children are being tenderly blonded on milk and honey and behind us under us around us structures that keep our kind in place are crushing themselves to bits so it's that fear of that crushing that we're feeling around us and the fear of of uh, losing the privilege that really define our experience up to now 
But now what I'm wondering is if you can tell more about how you use your body to, to disrupt space, because that's also what we've lost in, in white middle class South Africa, right, is public space, because all of the spaces we move in is privatized because it's securitized and then we can feel safe and, yeah. and we don't have to see things and people we don't want to see that make us uncomfortable. So how do you, can you tell more about the ways that you disrupt so that? So I, I can speak about the project that I'm working on now that is from my home because I'm very interested in this intersection between the public and the private, as I said in the past, where my skin is something that I experience is very private. But as soon as I step outside of my house, my skin becomes political, you know. So even thinking about my skin as political inside my body, when we consider domesticity and the relationship between domestic labor and being in the house and all of that, I've even started thinking of the private home in South Africa as politicized. It's not even, it's also a public space in a sense, you know, because it reflects all of these public narratives. So one piece I'm specifically thinking about now, I, I pimped out this wedding dress and I like stitched um, a lot of ribbons and bells and things to it. And I did a performance piece inside my house um, where I was playing with the, the borders of the Victorian house's um, window frames and kind of trying to feel the frames in this wedding dress. Um, but the veil that I created, I made out of um, those meshed bags that you get vegetables in. So connecting it to, oh, wow. you're connecting it to, to commercializing and the commercialization of the wedding and getting married. And so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the things that we've discussed now, like domesticity, marriage, and how can I, how can I um, subvert those? So another one that I want to do in this wedding dress is to um, dig, not turn over a, a compost heap in this wedding dress, in this gown. And the idea of that is also like how something needs to die for something to come alive again, how certain ideas and ideals need to die before we can create new identities. And this is me trying to search for those identities that Christy van Avestes and ask about outside of apartheid. So I'm feeling this pressure to get married. I'm feeling this pressure of, of, of like that little routine that you follow finishing your degree, getting married, pop out a baby, and then what, you know? So I'm feeling these constraints on my identity, and now I'm searching through performance for other ways. And, and I don't know what the other ways are at this stage, so I'm trying to just make people uncomfortable with certain actions, you know? So to, to wear a wedding dress and to do something very laborious, like turn over a compost heap, getting it dirty, being with my feet in something that is decomposting, that's dead things, that is used in the garden to grow, but it's also connected to labor and the house. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. And then in the last episode, we spoke about um, the project that I did in, um, in Stellenbosch and how nothing happened to me when the university removed that sculpture. And, and those kind of the narratives around my art and the things that happen after the interventions are also that what's interesting to me. So um, when I did the performance piece with Tuduzeli Matabula in um, last year um, for Infecting the City, the conversations that the tourists had with me after doing the performance was really interesting because I was the person that they approached. White tourists from Europe mostly spoke to me and wanted to know what it was about. And they were really upset about me in the intervening with Cecil John Rhodes, um, literally just also in a hypervisual um, gown made out of doilies, moving around the space and, and with water cleansing the space and kind of doing almost a ritual for 
preparing the space so something else can happen and calling our audience to look at us as female bodies instead of this man standing up on the pedestal. Mm. And, and what was again interesting was the conversations that happen afterwards. So that's kind of a little bit of what I'm doing now. And then also trying to channel this, keeping my hands busy in the work that I do, because I've noticed that I, it's, it's been bred into me to feel like I need to be busy all the time. And, and now I'm using this to knit and to crochet and to create quilts, but for art. So I'm, I'm knitting in interesting textures and fabrics and words on it. And then I'm also going to use this knitted strange scarf thing to kind of... Um, show in performance that feeling of constriction, that feeling of not being able to express authentically because of this structure that was created around my identity. So at this stage, it's really much just pointing out the structure because we're not even speaking about the structure like we've said in this conversation. What I also really like about the projects that you're speaking about there is that you do incorporate elements of this identity that that are also really because i don't think the identity is all bad i think mm -hmm. it really they are like you like with the wedding gown in the compost heap like composting and and farming working in the land that's something that's really in our dna as mm -hmm. boerenfrauen yes <laughs> and it's a it is a I think it's a wonderful thing to to have that kind of in your history and in your and then also the the knitting and the um, crocheting and it's kind of working with your it's care labor that is creative that is away from screens that is very practical that is mm. very um, useful and mm. it, and it takes a lot of time and it's it's usually quite cheap and it's almost the opposite of all of these forms of entertainment that we are given today. So that's also what I really like is that you kind of juxtapose or, or contrast these, the constrictions of the identity, but also the things that, that are, that we can repurpose and mm. rethink. And yeah, and even and alongside of that also, you are creating a space where politics and this can coexist mm. because you are disrupting. So you are in essence also bringing politics to the home and, mm. um, and reconciling that idea that we spoke about earlier where all of this labor was in service, not of some larger, you know, political goal to destabilize. But um, so I think that is also what brings a new dimension or that, that that this performance piece helps to disrupt and also helps to showcase the, the possibilities of um, politicizing our homes. Yeah, and, and I think that's also because I process verbally. So in our conversation and in talking about these pieces that I'm very much in the, I'm literally making them now. So it's still in the creation phase and, and often the theory kind of comes afterwards. And the reason I actually created the wedding dress and the wedding gown and and I'm knitting at the moment is because for a very long time I've been avoiding those um, ways of working. So knitting has been offered to me by my grandmother or a family member almost every December holiday of my life. Someone has asked me, do you want to learn how to knit? And I think at some point someone must have shown me or I must have like done it for a while because when I started knitting for this project, I started with a YouTube video and I started watching the tutorial and the next moment I was doing it by myself. And it was a very strange moment of kind of 
always seeing this action happening around me and having people offering it to me because it's something that a woman in our culture does. You know, you knit and you crochet and you create things for your through circus. And, um, and so I was resisting that for a long time. And I think what's interesting about this conversation now is that we've said that there's a resistance to go back and refer to our history. And even I think from people that have more liberal thinking and alternative thinking, there's this resistance to go to that. So that's why I've deliberately turned towards it. Also, because I think it's important to speak about it. And I realized if I'm not going to, if I'm not going to do it, and of course, I'm not the only one, but if I'm going to be another artist avoiding speaking about this, then we're not going to transcend these issues. Yeah. So it is, it is a political bringing in of things that are so close and so domestic and so around me all the time. Ironically, the wedding dress that I have is also a wedding dress that I bought myself because I went through a thrifting phase and I went into a thrift shop and once saw this like interesting wedding dress. And at that stage, still thought I was going to get married and very much holding on to this ideal of security through marriage. And then now I have this item in my closet and, and in the process of kind of criticizing and, and, and rediscovering who I am and my identity, I realized I need to do something with this thing. It's interesting that I bought it for myself and then decided to kind of um, subvert it in performance. Yeah, you're almost using your kind of journey or your dream and applying it in a new way. Yeah. Jana, I'm also thinking of that story that you told in one of the previous episodes that I really thought about a lot where you were at the Fees Must Fall protests and you were wearing a scarf, actually a very special scarf that your someone gave to your mother or something. And then one of the black students was going to go into the building and she was scared that she would be identified or I don't know and you gave her the scarf and you you say so nicely in the episode for some reason you thought that she would give it back to you but now in hindsight in hindsight obviously not because it was like in the heat of a protest and <laughs> and then that that symbol of the the serpi the which is such an Afrikaans woman thing I mean you see it every you're also wearing a serpi now <laughs> yes <laughs> Everywhere we go, we see the Afrikaans women with the sarpis, and some of them are very special and very beautiful. And then you give this to this black woman who's going in and who is very vulnerable on account of her skin color, and you give it as a kind of something to cover her. Yeah, so that was very, I don't know if you want to unpack that a bit, because I've been thinking of that quite a lot. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because that I only verbalized it in that episode for the first time where I like remembered it again as an instance that really exposed for me like all the different dimensions that often remain implicit that we don't um, talk about those type of embodied experiences and complexities and and yeah I'm I'm thinking also how last week we spoke of or the previous episode we spoke about allyship and I was thinking of examples like the black sash as maybe like early white female examples of of allyship to an extent and how there's also this parallel how there's this this double identity almost of for this this more progressive Afrikaans people to have on the one hand your only way to access in terms of racial politics is, and then even with gender politics is to 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 take a back seat and to understand that and and those complexities that we talk about and then how that's kind of contrasted with 
with the home dilemmas and it talks a lot about the do we revert then to single group spaces where you know all the white feminists have to gather to talk about white feminist issues in a way that we are doing now and where we don't feel there's a platform but it obviously comes with the knowledge that it would be inappropriate to have a lot of these conversations in the very political spaces where where we are often not even um, on purpose but just like intuitively like with that scarf example it was like a very intuitive moment so yeah i don't i don't actually know what more to make of it and how um we can tap into more the like the variations of our the ways in which we can make political contributions if i can say it like that yeah so there you bring something up that i'm always wondering about um is it necessary to have an Afrikaans, a white Afrikaans feminist movement, or should we rather um, step into other movements as allies? And then I, it's difficult because it's again a thing of centering our own pain and centering our own issues versus, but then on the other hand, I think it is necessary to do this kind of introspection. Uh, and it's, it's, it's part of the work that we have to do. Yeah, and it's also understanding the one thing that I also said is like how you are complicit in, in certain acts. And, and we often, I think, think only in terms of when we raise these issues, it's to um, expose our oppression, but not really. And like what Mikulina is also doing is to, to make public how we are complicit. Mm, um, yeah. And that's something that we've been talking about in this conversation a lot as well. And Azil, to touch on your point of, is it necessary to create uh, Afrikaans feminism? I'm wondering if we've now established that the private space and the, the Uranias um, of Afrikaans people is like in the, in the it's, you know, it's separate from the public space. There needs to be a way to pierce that wall, like you said, the walls that we put up. And I'm not sure because movements at the moment exist, there's feminist movements, like you say, you also call yourself a feminist um, philosopher and Jan also does that and a feminist writer. So we do, uh, we do ascribe to these kind of identities and this conversation very much forms part of the project of trying to destabilize these, these ideas. But then it's still possible for for people that really need to have this critical reflection and self-reflection to separate. They don't have to listen to our podcast, for example, or they don't have to go to a march. So, so there's this problem where there's still, uh, there's still this, uh, uh, it's available for them to take themselves out of the space if it makes them too uncomfortable. And I don't know how, that's my question is, how are we going to combat that? Because that is still upholding within the private space. If you can draw yourself away from any kind of movement outside. And I think this is where I, I suppose, I'm also processing out loud. This is where my responsibility comes in to, to question and destabilize and, and be the person that makes conversation uncomfortable within my family and within my home. So that that kind of, so that I am then the thing piercing the wall um, because I have access to that space and that space is my private space as well. So, yeah. And I think um, it's globally a problem of people creating their little enclaves also on the internet and mm. and i really think that's the role of art today and mm. the artist is to enter those spaces in unexpected ways and mm. become part of people's lives even if they 
didn't know what they invited in when they started looking at you or started yeah. reading you. Or... Yeah, yeah, that's true. So is there any closing remarks, anything you feel like we haven't spoken about that you guys just want to mention still at the end? Any conclusions? <laughs> there is such a thing. I think maybe it's a nice ending for the episode to read Ronaldo Carver's poem mm. about, um, because it's so powerful and, and in a way it, it works as a critique of our entire conversation now. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> So just to contextualize, yeah, so I, how I read this poem is I, I read it as a critique of women like us who, who think we are radical and who think we are doing things, but in the end, we're just back into our little insular worlds that make us feel good and don't really contribute to anything mm. um, that changes anything. Or I don't know, is, is that how you read it? Yeah, yeah. Definitely as well. And I, I think it's very important. And I like that you chose this as like a conclusion thing to, to do, because I think it is important that we critique ourselves in that way as well, to be aware of the fact that the projects that we are working on, on is not necessarily going to change the world. Like we need to, we need to constantly ask ourselves if there is someone out there that can tell us, well, it's actually not that amazing what you're doing. Like it's important. Yeah. <laughs> And it's also, it, it's all just making you feel good and yeah. not, yeah. So the poem's name is Red Virgin. And then she starts with a quote from um, the Arcade Fire song, My Body is a Cage, which is literally probably my favorite song. <laughs> so when I read this, I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, Okay, so the, the quote is, the Arcade Fire quote is, I'm living in an age that calls darkness light. Though my language is dead, still the shapes fill my head. Okay, so the poem is in Afrikaans. Um, All the hardcore wet meisjes wat ek ken, draa eventually hulle pa of opa's suits. Dit begin by die eerste pixie cut, any radicalization from hulle eating habits. Die Hannah Arden Plath romance, the cute mixed babies by the Sankara lookalike, the blog vlog in the Simon Wild quote tattooed in Bookman Old style. All sins are attempts to fill voids. And net so falls self-forgiveness in a rhythmless lapse to the new democracy's equity policy. Oh, bye, Donkey. <laughs> I know. Self-forgiveness that's when us rhythmless lapse fall. Yeah. <laughs> Just a few more things before we sign off. We are so grateful that you listened to the public airing of our thoughts. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do so. Rate and review us if you enjoy our content. This way you help us by making it easier for other listeners to find us. As always, we would love to hear what you think about the concepts, theories, texts and practices discussed in this podcast. So please reach out to us either through Instagram at Eret underscore podcast through our Eret podcast Facebook page or via email at eretpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find all these links in the show notes below. If you would like to get a short email from us sharing resources, related content and any other fun stuff that we don't share in the podcast, please go to our website at nbcollective.space 
forward slash air hyphen it and subscribe. If you are interested in supporting this project, you can also do so at nbcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it. And remember, just like laundry, sometimes putting those stuffy ideas out in the air can help freshen them out. Until next time, stay stimulated. stimulated.